It is good to gather today with God's people, isn't it? What a delight. Thank you for singing this morning. As I like to say often, when we sing, we obey scripture, right? We sing to the Lord, but you know that we sing to each other. That's one of the fellowships in the body. That's how we fellowship. We proclaim truth and song to each other. And so we obey Colossians 3, that we would sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and so just right there, we just obeyed the Lord and how sweet it was. Amen. What a joy. I want to welcome you this morning. If you are new to EGBC, uh, we love all that God brings to us. And uh, we're just amazed that God keeps bringing more people to us. And so we want you to feel welcome this morning. Um, If you're new here, there's a connection card in the lobby on that back table. Grab one, fill it out. Not so we can stalk you, so we can love you. Okay, we just want to love you better, pray for you. You may have questions about this church. We'd love to answer those. Um, And so if you could fill one of those out and give it to me at the door or somebody else that looks like they know what they're doing, they'll give it to me. All right, and, uh, and we just want to follow up with you and, and love on you in the name of Jesus. So thank you uh, for being here this morning. Um, and just, just so I don't ignore uh, my own father here this morning, this is, this is Pastor Steve Schroeder. Uh, he's from, he is from Chicago area and uh, came out for the Shepherds Conference in Southern California. And since LA is closer than Chicago, he came up for a few days. And so uh, he is just glad to be here with us and and uh, we love uh, having family in town. So thanks for being here, Dad. Church, this morning, uh, we're going to deal with Psalm 119 once again. So if you have your Bible, would you turn there? And we're going to continue to plow through the scriptures and see what God has for us. This morning we'll be in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. And we'll be in that section of the scriptures this morning. You know that nobody likes instability in life. I mean, just nobody likes instability. We all like stability, all right? And that's true for everything. We like stable cars. I mean, we just like, we like going out to our car, turning it on, and it's starting. And maybe you've had cars like me where you're like, I hope it starts today. Like, you know, it's just roll the dice and hopefully it works. And that's not a place we all want to live, right? Where you're like, oh man, am I going to have to push it today? You know, if you remember that, great. If not, um, that's okay too. Um, We like stability. Um, We like stability. You know, some of us are afraid of heights. And you're, you're afraid of heights because you're unstable, right? So, you know, you might be rock climbing or mountain climbing, like I'm, I enjoy to do, and, and you're, let's say, in Yosemite, and you know there's big rocks around you, but there ain't no way you're going on top of that big rock. You like looking at the big rock from the bottom, and, and the reality is that big rock isn't going to move. But the thought of instability, you're not going up there, right? Because you're just, hey, I know, I know that people don't normally fall off, and I know there's normally not earthquakes in Yosemite, but what if? Right, and so you're just panicked, and so the stability keeps you on the ground. Um, Like me this week, I went skiing with a few brothers, and uh, Rick Yergo had the audacity to laugh at me um, because I went on unstable snow. And so I cut off the trail, and he's thinking I'm gonna go up and around, and I just went in and down, right? Because you hit snow that you think is stable, and it's not stable, so what happens? You just wipe out because something underneath you is not stable. And you know, in life, we long for stability. We long for stability financially. We long for stability relationally. We long for stability physically. We long for stability spiritually and emotionally. 
And, and this morning, the psalmist is gonna push us to the reality that the word of God is the only stable foundation for all of life. And the moment we deviate off of that path, you will be entirely unstable. And we're, we, we need to be honest with our own souls this morning because we've all been there. And by been there, I mean in the unstable part. Because we've all gone our own way thinking we know better than God and we think that we're actually gonna be on more sure foundation, more solid ground, and we make our houses on sand, right? And then we wonder why life falls apart. And we're like, oh my goodness, I'm just, it's not stable. And it's because we deviated from God's good plan for his people, thinking that we knew better than him. And so this morning, we're gonna look into the reality of the stability of the word of God in a world that's entirely unstable. And hopefully, we'll come away this morning more convinced of our need to run to the word of God because there alone we find the stability for all of life and godliness. So let's read Psalm 119, 89 to 96 once again together. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we implore you by the power of your spirit to meet with us, and we ask you to open dim eyes. Open darkened eyes this morning. Open distracted eyes this morning. Would you help us this morning, Father? I I know without a shadow of a doubt that every one of our minds this morning is distracted. We're distracted by the hour of sleep we lost. We're distracted by the trials of life. We're distracted by a myriad of things. And Lord, we need you to hone in our hearts this morning with a singular focus on the truth of your word that you might Teach us. Oh God, we we desperately need you and we need what your word has for us this morning. So open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Amen. Well, we have two points this morning. Two simple points. And the first one is hope in the ever stable word. Hope in the ever stable word. If you look at verse 89 through 91, you'll see the psalmist, forever, O Lord, Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Just notice the sandwich, if you will, in the text. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. And then verse 96, the end of the section. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. What he's doing here, he's gonna start and end with the centrality of the scriptures for the stability of life. And then everything in between is gonna gonna support that point somehow. And so we're gonna start with this hope in the ever-stable word of God. Verse 89, we see that the word, or the eternality of the word in verse 89, the eternality of the word. Your word, it's interesting, in, in the original language, it's your word, Yahweh, Lord, forever. That's it. Your word, Yahweh, forever. The eternality 
of the word of God. It's interesting, he says forever there, and then he repeats himself, firmly fixed. It's an absolute permanency. It's kind of, he's, he's like bending over backwards to repeat himself when it's entirely unnecessary. You know, like that, welcome to the Department of Redundancy Department. It's that kind of thing. It's like, we, we don't need to say this, but I'm gonna tell you because you need to hear it. You need to hear it again. The absolute permanence of the word of God cannot be brought into question. It is firmly fixed. Psalm 119, 62, just a few verses back. The sum of your words is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. I mean, he's, he's already told us this. The word of God never changes. Listen to 1 Peter 1. Okay, we're gonna jump you know, forward in church history 1,500 years from when this, or maybe 1,200 years from when this psalm is written. Listen to what Peter says. Since you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God, the living and abiding word of God, all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fails. But the word of the Lord remains forever. It's a quote from Isaiah 40. Here we see the word of God replete with statements that this word is unchanging. It is eternally fixed in the heavens. And that word, this comparison is so sweet. Forever, O Lord, your word, it's firmly fixed where? in the heavens. Well, this is really fascinating because the heavens are a fixed body. I mean, isn't that what people have used for millennia to guide themselves? It's like you just look at the stars and mariners guide themselves because the stars don't change, right? And you can look at things and you people study the stars and the constellations to, to have exactness, so much so that there were some wise men who found a random star, right? It was an anomaly. Something showed up in the heavens that shouldn't be there. And it was a clue, hey, go find somebody. Because, and, and God used the stars, a changing in the stars to even communicate a reality of the, the coming of Christ. So here the psalmist is saying, there is something that's permanent and we all know it's permanency. The heavens, they're firmly fixed. So is the word of God, it's firmly fixed. Jesus went so far to say, he went the next step in Matthew 24, the heavens and earth, what will they do? They're gonna pass away. This world as we know it, it's gonna deteriorate and then be destroyed. But my words will never pass away, right? And Jesus' words are the words of this book, all right? So these words will not pass away. So the psalmist is clearly telling us that these words will, they'll never, be, they'll never pass away, for one. But they'll never be replaced. They're never gonna become out of date. They are the permanent word of God. We don't need a new word. We don't need a fresh revelation. We have everything we need right here in the written authoritative word of God. It's unchanging and unchangeable, just like the heavens. They were fixed and they aren't going anywhere. So the the eternality of the word must be recognized. But look at where he goes next because he's gonna continue on this theme of the, the eternality of the word, but now he's gonna use a different analogy, if you will, a different example to show us the, the eternality of the word. And here he turns to the everlasting faithfulness of God, verse 90 and 91. Keep verse 89 in your mind, and now verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. So beautiful here. 
Verse 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. He's not a God of past working. He's not a God who was faithful to Abraham and Isaac. He's not a God who worked then and is disinterested now. He's a God who's faithful to every generation. So I just was curious as I'm looking at the word generation. I looked up how long is a generation? I don't know what your thinking would be. So I'm looking at what's a generation. And most historians agree that a generation is between 25 and 30 years. Now, that's, I mean, you think about having children, and that's how they count generations as childbearing age, and so they, this is a generation. So, okay, that's interesting. So then I'm thinking about generation. I read Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore the Lord your God is the faithful God who keeps a covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So he's faithful to all generations. Deuteronomy 7, to a thousand of generations. So I'm thinking, okay, a generation, 25 to 30 years. We're talking about a God who just figuratively speaking, he's faithful to generations for 25 to 30,000 years. That's comforting because Psalm 119 was written maybe 3,000 years ago. So guess what, folks? He's still faithful. And he's gonna way outlive this planet, right? And he's still gonna be faithful. And if you preach this text in 30,000 years, he's still gonna be faithful, right? That's the point. You're not gonna outlive the faithfulness of God. He wasn't faithful then. And I think we get confused by that. We can look and say, oh God, you did so much back then, but today you kind of leave me on, our, you leave me on my own. You worked back then for this person or in this way, and I read it in history or I read it in the scriptures, but it's not what you're doing today. He says, no, this God is faithful to all generations. Well, how's he back it up? He says, you've established the earth and it stands fast. So we must not miss the connection here. How did he establish the earth? By his word. So he spoke and he established the world. And then he says, you have a book that I spoke and it's faithful to all generations. So how do we see the faithfulness of God through this book? Just look at the world he made. And he says, the world screams the faithfulness of the creator. And so we can look at the creation here and see the comparison, the contrast, that this God who established the earth and it stands fast is the one who, is, who has also firmly fixed the word in the heavens forever. Now we just marvel at that, don't we? We marvel at this God who put the world in place. You know, science spins its wheels to figure out how God did what he did. And they try to figure out why does, why does the world exist like it does? And they have all these reasons. At the end of the day, they can't explain it because there's a God who holds it all together. And it's just, he spoke it into existence. And look at verse 90, 91. By your appointment, they stand to this day. The, the creation to this day stands because there's a God who is faithful. So in verse 90, he was faithful to his creation. In verse 91, he is faithful to his creation. Past faithfulness and present faithfulness. Sounds a little like Colossians 1, right? The Savior, Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power. If he ceases to uphold them, they will fall apart. If the God who created this steps out of this, everything ceases to exist. But he holds it together. But don't lose the point of the text. The point of the text is the word is firmly fixed. And he's just talking about creation to help us realize that the God who does this thing we see is the God who holds together what we cannot see. 
right? So he gives us a visible illustration of an unseen reality. And so God is faithful both in his word being eternal. He's faithful to all generations as demonstrated even through creation. And it's just sweet. Um, just as a side note, the end of verse 91, for all things are your servants. His, his point there is everything you made serves you. So like, God, you're the one that made it. You're the one that sustains it. And well, it just makes sense that everything then serves you. Right. He's not saying they're your servants like they belong to me. Right. It's all that you made. It serves you because you are in charge of it. So the psalmist is driving us to this st- stability of the scriptures. And he's gonna jump away from that a little bit in verse 92, but jump with me to 96 underneath this first point of the stability of scripture. And we need to see a statement that really, some would say second to none regarding the word of God in scripture. Here we see the exceeding perfection of the word in verse 89, or 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. We need to pick this apart and see what God has for us this morning. I have seen a limit to all perfection simply means everything lacks something. Make sense? Everything in the world lacks something. Everything is deficient. I mean, isn't that just, that's true. Everything's deficient. Now, it may not be deficient the moment you buy it, but it is in two minutes. <laughs> right? I mean, everything's deficient. So it's, I could, this is, this right now is perfection. Just wait a few years. It's not going to be that way. Right? Wait, I mean, you can get the latest and greatest. Oh, it might be perfect for 2018. Just wait a little bit. It won't be in very long. Right? Everything's in a process of decay. Everything's falling apart, including you and me right? Like it or not. And he says, I've seen a limit to everything. Interestingly, the word seen is is the word to seriously steady something. This isn't like a casual, oh, I walked by and glanced at it. It is to understand, to to reveal, to dig into. It even can be used to spy out something, like careful looking into something. So the psalmist is saying, I've really undertaken a study of everything. Kind of like reading the book of Ecclesiastes. I've looked deeply at the world and it's vanity of vanities. I mean, that's the point, right? I've looked deeply at all things and it just comes up empty. If you don't seek your creator in the days of your youth, when you grow old, you won't, right? I mean, he's just, and he finishes the book and you're like, I am so depressed (laughs) because I've seen, I've studied and everything lacks. And here I think it's a rather obvious conclusion because we simply live in a fallen world. And we've talked a lot about that in Psalm 119. The effects of a fallen world are everywhere, aren't they? It's just we can't get around it. We really try to make heaven exist on earth, but at the end of the day, we can't because we live in a fallen world. And so we try to push pain far away. We try to act as though everything's together, but it's not. And we know it, and you know it, and everybody else knows it. And so the conclusion isn't that Unique, I don't think. He just said, I've looked at everything and there is a limit to its perfection. And the contrast is glorious. And this is what, when God's word sets you up like this, you need to be ready for what's coming. I've seen a limit to everything, but. So he's gonna, he's gonna go a different direction, right? He's gonna say, okay, I've seen a limit to all the earthly stuff, 
but I'm about to tell you something that you don't want to miss. So listen up, because the contrast is beautiful. He says, but your commandments, your instructions, they are exceedingly broad. Now, you might read that and think, why didn't he just say your commandment is perfect? <laughs> the world's not perfect, your commandment is. Well, he's, again, he's using these adjectives to describe this, this like, this is greater than life. This is better than you could ever imagine. It's broader and greater and better than everything. And so he's saying it literally, it possesses all we need. That's what exceedingly broad means. He contrasts it with everything has limits. That word perfection would be translated limits as well. Everything has limits. But the word of God is limitless. It is boundless. It needs no help. It needs no second testament to help it out, right? It is everything we need. I mean, Psalm, Psalm 19, 7, a verse that is also well known. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, because the word lacks nothing. I mean, it's interesting here, the, another translation says, the word of God is beyond comprehension, it's something that we can dive into but never find the depth of it, right? You can just keep going and going and going and think, man, I'm just gonna know God better and know God better. And you, you finish your life diving into the same truth, feeling like there's just more to know of God. You know why eternity won't be boring? Because you'll never stop learning of God. You're, you're not gonna figure him out. So eternity is going to be awesome because you have this awesome God that you're going to continually know more about. And so the law, it's interesting. If you look at verse 95, 95, he says, I am yours, save me. I've sought your precepts. In verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Well, how can the psalmist have these statements of I continually go back to the scriptures because he actually believes he'll never explore the depths. So I'm gonna meditate on you, I'm gonna run to you, I'm gonna go back to you because it's exceedingly broad. I'm never gonna get to the point of saying I've had enough. You never get to the point with God's word like Thanksgiving dinner where you just can't eat anymore. It's like day's over, I'm done. It's not how the word of God works. He goes, you're gonna go back to it over and over over again, and you're going to continue to find it amazingly brilliant at every turn because it has no limits. And since it lacks nothing, as we will see even here in, these, in this text, um, he can delight in it. He's learned that delighting in anything else means he's delighting in something that lacks, right? Because everything has limits. So if he delights in something that's not God and not the word of God, he's left empty because all of those things at some point will fail you. Even good things, folks. You can have a great marriage, but if you delight in that, I mean, my wife and I have these real frank conversations. You better not delight in me <laughs> because I'm gonna fail you. Now, do I love my wife? Absolutely. And I praise God for my wife? Absolutely. But if my delight, singular delight was found in my wife, that's a burden she can never bear because she's gonna fail me. My children, I love my children, but if they are my delight, truly that thing that satisfies me the most, they're gonna fail me. And then I'm gonna be angry at God and angry at them because 
they can't carry my delight because they have limits. Your job can't carry your delight. Your bank account can't carry your delight. Your possessions can't carry your delight. There is a God alone who is boundless. And he says, I can carry your delight. And so the psalmist can say I, over and over, I delight, I delight, I delight. Why? Because this God never leaves you wanting. And so the word of God lacks nothing. And folks, when, when life gets hard, we've got to embrace this truth. When the going gets tough, it's where we got to go and say, okay, Lord, I really truly believe you right now that your word is exceedingly broad. You've not left me hanging and wanting because you are enough. So we hate instability and the psalmist is pushing us to the stability of the word. Now, if you've been coming to EGBC for the last few months, you know that we've been plodding through Psalm 119 and you know we've had some real low moments in the sense of the reality of despair. I mean, this is still the context. This is still what's going on. The psalmist is not like clapping for joy because life is easy. He's been walking us through, life is hard. People want to kill me. This is, this is miserable. God, I am broken. I am down in the dumps of life. Right, so that's the context. In that context, in that just great instability, oh, there's stability in the word. And so he just turns his attention right there and he says, I'm gonna hang my hat there because it doesn't move. There is stability in the scriptures. Well, the psalm moves us, all right, to a second point, if you will. And it's interesting because the second point really is built on the first. There's a stability in the word, but he's gonna go right away to life is unstable. We live in an unstable world. And what's so fascinating is in every verse in the middle of this psalm, he talks about instability at some level, and he bounces right back to the stability of the scriptures. So we're, we've seen the stability of the scriptures. That's what's guiding the psalmist through the storm. It is his beacon. It's his lighthouse. Here's the stability that I need. But he's gonna jump right back in and say, hey, I just want you to know life's unstable. Apart from God, there's great instability in life. So let's, let's pick this apart together. Uh, beginning in verse 92, we're gonna see that life is life in an unstable world and how do we, how do we respond? Well, in verse 92, we see the reality of death and delight. Death and delight, the reality of death and delight. You, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. One translation just said, I would have died. That's really the best way to say it. If your law had not been my delight, I would have died. Affliction, simply put, produces death. And when we think of death, we think immediately physical, like go to the grave. But let's just stop for a moment. How about emotional death? Do you know what our, you know what our culture calls emotional death? Depression. I feel nothing. I have no emotions. I don't know what love is. I mean, right, that's what, we've got a category for that in our culture. It's emotional death. And I, I really believe that it is produced by the affliction of life. Whatever, whatever your circumstances are, whatever trials you're facing, after a while, that scar tissue gets numb. And you just have, you just, you don't respond anymore because you're emotionally dead because of the trials of life. It's spiritual. I mean, there are people who say, I really, I really believe I'm a Christian. I really do. But frankly, I've been in Psalm 42 for 20 years. 
And Psalm 42 is, God, God, where are you? I'm seeking after you like a deer pants for water, but I can't find you, right? The affliction of life has brought you to the point of just spiritual, you're like, I'm just flatlined. I mean, I'm trusting in God, but I got nothing. Relational death, isolation. You become your own little bubble because everybody hurts you, right? You've been burned so many times. You've been hurt so many times. It's just you have the personality of a porcupine. (laughs) Keep everybody away. We can be friends as long as you don't invade the bubble. And if you get too close, I'm gonna let you know, right? You just, affliction brings death relationally. And you really have a hard time with people because you've been so hurt by people. And then obviously affliction brings death, like real actual death. The trials of life can bring us so low. I mean, we know today that a lot of the the affliction of life, the external afflictions actually cause disease. I'm not saying that's always the case, but we know it's true, don't we? Stress, pain, trials, and it brings genuine affliction into your body, even that could result in death. So the psalmist is still, folks, he is in this, the reality of despair. I would have died in my affliction. It would have killed me. The reality of death. But where does he, where does he say he starts off verse 92? With an if clause. If your law had not been my delight. You could retranslate that. Since your law has been my delight. He's, he's, he's a statement of fact. Because I delighted in you, this didn't happen to me. In other words, if I hadn't have delighted in you, what would have happened? If I hadn't have sought you and delighted in you, I would have perished, died in my affliction. So interesting, folks, delight. I mean, just a few things that came to my mind. It's his true constant, because it never changes. I delight in you, Lord. Everything else in the world can be crashing around me, going crazy. You're my true constant. You are my due north of my compass. Like I literally, I open that compass, you haven't changed. Oh, there might be storms raging all around me, but when I open that compass, you're my delight. You have not changed. It's the steadfast anchor of his soul. That anchor that is tossed, you know, when the waves are crashing all around your boat and you're, you might be jostling on top of the water, but everybody else is being smashed into the rocks and you're, you're able to have stability. Why? Because my delight was in my God. My delight was not in everything else around me. My delight was in my God. It's interesting in Psalm 119, there are 10 or more references to this idea of delighting and rejoicing and every one of them is attached to the scriptures because the psalmist is so convinced that if I don't delight in you, if I am not delighting in my God, life will fall apart. Life as I know it will cease to exist. And so he is committed to delighting in the Lord and his delight in the Lord is what preserves him through affliction. Can I ask this morning, what does it look like to delight in God? Oh, what does it mean to delight in anything? You value it? What I delight in, it's what I go to instinctively. Nobody has to remind me. I, I really enjoy food. So I don't, put, 
I don't put reminders on my calendar, eat breakfast. I wake up and what do I think? Eat. And then a few hours go by and what happens again? Eat. And then a few more hours go by, what happens again? Eat. And then a few more hours might go by and I want to eat again and I got to say, stop eating. Why? Because I enjoy eating. I like feeling full, right? So I want to eat food. It's, what I, it's a delight, a natural delight of the human existence. I delight in my family, not like in a holding them in a high regard like I mentioned a minute ago, but I enjoy them. And so I don't forget about them. I don't forget that I'm married. I, I, I really remember that all the time. I'm not like, oh man, I forgot I got a family at home. I got to go. No, it's just a natural longing of my heart because I love them. That's the psalmist. I delight in God. I really believe he's that good. And he knows what's best for me. And so this isn't a chore. This isn't an obligation. This is a delight. If I had not delighted in you, I would have perished. Folks, we need to be a church that delights in God. And we delight in the revelation from God because everything else will not satisfy, because everything else has limits, and everything else will leave you wanting. So life in an unstable world, but we delight in God. Well, the next verse, 93, here we see the reality of remembering and restoration. So we saw death and delight, now it's the reality of remembering and restoration. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Verse 93, the beginning is, is hard. I will never forget your precepts. Because we see that remembering is a conscience choice. It's a deliberate act. He doesn't say, I, I stumbled upon your word. He says, I remembered. I will never forget your precepts. Why is this so crucial? Well, as I've said before, the lies of sin are not only loud, folks, but they are constant. I mean, they are all around us. And these lies, even though they present the facade of stability, what do they produce? Instability. I mean, the lie back in the garden. Eat this fruit. You'll know better than God. Yeah, how'd that work for? Produced instability for the entire human race. But we're the exact same. I'm going to go after my sin, and in that moment, I really think it'll be more stable, more better, if you will, than seeking after God. But it's a lie, and the lies of sin are loud, and they're constant, and it's interesting. These lies always draw us from the word and the God of the word, and they will never coincide with the word. The lies of the world will never push you to the God of the word. They're always going to pull you from it. Oh, they might be sugar-coated with a scripture-ease or a Christian-ease because we're really good at that, aren't we? You know, just go to a Christian bookstore full of lies, coated in Christian talk. It's true. Turn on Christian radio. And if you listen long enough, you'll be like, whoa, whoa, time out. I did not agree with this book. Lies that are gonna actually pull you from God, not push you to him because the lies of sin will never draw you closer to God. They will always draw you away from him. And so we must, we must never neglect. Folks, when we neglect to remember God, we will fall into sin. Simply neglect. You know, when, I'm, when God begins to convict me and I, I'm confessing sin, you know what I often end up coming down to? 
God, forgive me for just neglecting you. It's not that I lied, cheated, stolen. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But it's God, I just neglected you. I just, I just live my day carefree from you. And that led me down this decision and this path of running from you. The psalmist says, I do not want to neglect you. I never, I do not want to forget you. We, we cannot leave remembering God up to accident because it won't work. I mean, isn't that, isn't that Romans 12 too? Renew your mind, how? In the word of God, why? Because when you do it, you'll know the will of God. Hey, if you don't go to the word of God, guess what? You'll never renew your mind and you won't walk with God. You can't have, you can't have it both ways. And so he says, we must remember God. A choice to remember God. So again, thinking practically, folks, how do we live that out? Well, maybe you need to turn off the lies. Maybe you're, maybe you're filling your mind with lies. And you've got all these lies that, that you just, you think, oh, they're not affecting me. That, that's, that's, that's Satan, all right? That's, your, that's the lies of the world. You're always affected. Everything that goes in your eye gate and your ear gate affects you. You can't be unaffected. And so maybe you're listening to lies. Maybe you like to read certain things that are full of lies. And, and you wonder, why am I not walking with God like I should? Well, stop listening to the lies. Choose to turn the lies off. Maybe another practical way to remember the truth of the word is memorize the truth. Know the truth, folks. I mean, have you ever been in a moment where you're like, okay, God, I need, I need wisdom right now. And I know somewhere in your word, something says something about, and you just, you're just like, I know it's there. And you just you can't get there. And I'm not saying chapter and verse the whole Bible. I'm just saying memorize the word of God. Know the word. So that in those moments when those lies hit, you're like, no, mm-mm, that's a lie. It goes against the word of God, and I'm not walking down that path. I really believe a lot of us don't know the scriptures well enough to refute the lies that are being put in our faces. We don't know the word of God, and so we live lives really believing the lies of this world and thinking we're okay, because we don't know this book. I would say another practical way to remember and never forget is to put yourself in the way of believers who will push you to the scriptures. It's why we gather on Sundays. We don't do this because we have nothing better to do. We do this because we need truth for our souls. We're in a world that's pulling us from the Lord and we gather with the church to be revitalized and then to encourage each other to say, oh man, can we talk about how God is working? Can you pray with me? Because I'm really struggling with this. We need to put ourselves in the way of believers so that we don't forget the word. Because when you neglect the word or when you neglect the body, you will neglect the word. You get that? When you neglect the body, you'll neglect the word and you will not remember the precepts of God. So, man, folks, he is, he is pushing us to remembering the word of God. Never forget it. And then I love what he says. He says, for by them, for by them, by the precepts of God, by the word of God, you have given me life. Real quick, just notice the you, who's working it is God. It's God. It's not the psalmist be like, oh yeah, God, I'm the man. No way. God, I went to your book. I sought you and you worked. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and work his good pleasure. pleasure. God is at work. How does he work? Through this book. It's just a beautiful thing. God has chosen to work through 
this book. Hebrews 4, the word of God is what? Living and active. This isn't a dusty old history textbook. It's the living and active word of God. It's that book that you read and it reads you. And you're like, man, alive. Like God wrote that for me. I mean, I had somebody tell me that this week. Like God wrote that for me. I said, isn't it awesome? A book that's thousands of years old, we open it and we're like, God, you could have written that today for me. It is what I need. God's word is alive and active. Hebrews 3, 7, I love it. The, 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 the author of Hebrews is gonna quote the Old Testament. He says this, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you harden your hearts, but the key word here for me is the word says. He doesn't say God said it. He says God is actively speaking today. And how does he do it? Through what he wrote. Through this book. The psalmist knew this, brothers and sisters. And he says, it's by them you work. So many Christians cry out to God, but they never go to the word of God. They're like, oh, God, help me. God, work. Come on, God, do something for me. And this book stays shut. And they think God has neglected them. And God has not only not neglected them, he has given everything them to them that they need, and they don't open this book. Look at, I mean, just listen to this psalm, folks. I just got to figure out where I am, where I am again. <laughs> listen to this. Listen to this. I mean, last week, brothers and sisters, verse 86. Your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me, O God. Verse 88. In your steadfast love, give me life, O God. That's his cry. And in three or four verses later, what does he say? By your word, you give me life. I mean, he says, you answered my prayer already. The prayer I prayed in 86 and 88, in 93, you answer it. And how did he do it? Not by some supernatural show up, by the word of God. See, we want God, we want an angel to show up and do something cool. Well, the coolest thing God will ever do is reveal himself through his word. So open the word of God and read it. And we cry out to God and we run to God and we say, God, oh, I need you. And sadly, it's like, God, I need you, but I'm gonna choose to be lazy and I'm gonna choose to be ignorant, and I'm gonna choose to neglect you, but I want you to do something for me. He has done something for you. He wrote the word of God, and he wants you to go to it because in that book, you and I find life. And so the psalmist says, it's the character of God and the promises of God that bolstered me. They gave me life through my affliction. Not out of it. Through it, you gave me life. So he cried to God, and he ran to God, and he found deliverance from God. Isn't that sweet? I mean, that is the preciousness of this word. And so he was, he remembered, and he was restored in this book. Well, the instability of the world continues. In verse 94. In verse 94, we see the reality of salvation and sanctification. Salvation and sanctification. Look at verse 94. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. He starts off with a statement of identity. I'm yours, God. This is allegiance to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. It's how his name that he revealed himself was Yahweh. I am that I am. And he says, God, Lord, I am yours. 
and 3,000 years later, is this not the call of the gospel on all of us? I'm yours. We, we, we don't have split allegiances, do we? We don't have a foot in and a foot out. We don't have, oh, well, I love God and I love, no, it's, I am yours. I am yours. The psalmist totally got this. And so he proclaims his allegiance, his submission. He has died to self and he lives for the glory of another. I am yours, God. I am yours. And in that cry of identity, it's immediately followed up with an imperative command. Save me. We've seen this before. Help me. Give me life. Save me. So again, remember the context. He's, he's not skipping through life, folks. He's not writing from a little cloud somewhere in the sky. He's writing in the Malayu and suffering of life. He is just like us every day. And so he cries out for dependence. And I think, again, we see here the cry that begins the Christian life, God save me. And the cry that continues in the Christian life, God save me. If you only ask God to save you in 1973, then you're missing out on something in the Christian life. It's a daily save me. I don't mean save me in the sense of justify me again. I mean, God, I need you. Deliver me. Save me. I can't do it. I'm helpless apart from you. So I need you. Save me. And so he, he identifies with God. He depends on God. But folks, we got to hone in on something here this morning. We've got to hone in on the statement of devotion. He says, I'm yours, save me. But look at what he says next. He doesn't say, like he said before, for, oh God, you're faithful. Now that is true. Is God faithful? And does God save us because he's faithful? All right, don't, don't forget that. But what does he say? He says, I'm yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. Here we see the heart of a true follower of God is devoted to God. And we need to kind of tangent off on this for a moment, okay? Because it's all grace. It's all based on the identity he has with his God and Savior. But it's still obedience. He's, it's all rooted in who he is. His identity with the, with the God that he loves is sure. And we could go through, we've already talked in Psalm 119 about the grace and mercy of God that's replete in this psalm. But right here, he's turning the ship, the, the ship if you will, and saying, I obey you. Yes, you are my God. Yes, you have saved me. Yes, it's all by grace. And in that grace, I obey you. And we need to discuss this a little bit because you see, God resists the proud. Do you know what the proud person is? The proud person is one who disregards the word of God thinking they know better than God. That's the proud. And you know what? There are Christians that God resists. So you're like, whoa, time out. I'm a blood-bought child of God. God doesn't resist me. Okay, I understand that. Do you know that Jude talks about those being saved as though by fire? In other words, they're thieves on the cross. Like, you live your life a reprobate, God saves you, praise be to Jesus. Does God do that? Absolutely, amen, we rejoice in him. Do you know that's not God's good plan for your life as a child of God? God's not thinking, okay, you know what, I saved you, now go live like a reprobate. That's not the Christian existence. So you see, the, the Christian existence is, you've transformed me and I live for you. So there are those who really live their lives in the reality of Hebrews 12. We've talked a lot about Hebrews 12, God disciplining his children. Why? Because they're proud. They're his children and he's, he's disciplining, disciplining. They don't know many of the blessings of grace because they're rejecting God practically. 
They're living in rebellion practically. I'm not talking about your position, folks. Be clear. I'm talking about your life. You're unwilling to submit to God. And so here, he resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Well, the humble person is simply one who submits to the law of God. Is that not what the psalmist desires, folks? I mean, what is he saying over and over and over? I want to live for you. What's the key verse? I hope you remember this. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then he spends 170 verses telling you how to do it. I'm going to guard it according to the word. Because I want to walk with you. I want to live for you. The the humble person, the humble Christian admits, I'm going to do it God's way. And folks, when you do that, guess what? You're given even more grace and more goodness from this God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace that's in me. But he still worked harder. (laughs) Are you tracking? He's saying it's grace. I believe in what we call grace-motivated sanctification. It's all grace. God has worked in you, and so we live out for him. And there are times where I'm like, God, I, I just need your help to live for you. I need your grace because I can't do it in my strength. I don't stand up and beat my chest and say, yeah, I'm awesome. I did it. No, no, it's, it's his grace. But Paul says, I still worked harder than anybody. I was unwilling to let even a hint of sin be in me by his grace. So it's always grace, but we must delight in the Lord and then diligently walk with him. Diligently walk with him. And folks, this is lost in American evangelicalism. We don't talk about diligently walking with God. We talk about, oh, there's this God in heaven, your father, and he loves you. Come as you are and stay as you are. Don't worry about being transformed. Just, you know, come and and you're all right. That is a lie. That's not in this book. Yeah, come as you are and he'll radically transform you. And if you're not radically transformed, then you're not his. Whoa, that got harsh. Well, it's the truth, folks. If you're not radically transformed, you don't know Jesus because everybody who knows Jesus is radically transformed. That's the point of the gospel. And so the psalmist here, he's not puffing his chest up and saying, God, I'm great. He's simply saying, God, your promises say that you work for those who walk with you. You bless those who walk with you. So guess what, God, I've walked with you. I've obeyed you. And now do your work do your work. It's like when you read the book of Proverbs and there's just wisdom for life. Guess what, folks? You reject God's wisdom for life and you'll suffer the consequences of going your own way. And you, you obey the wisdom of, of this book and you're like, wow, God, it worked. It just worked. Like, I just did it your way and wow. Like, I just actually practiced a soft answer turns away wrath. And like, the conversation went from, you know, 100 miles an hour to zero. Because I just obeyed your word. We actually believe God. And we believe there's divine blessing promised through the scriptures for all who choose to walk according to them. You can't say to the word of God, okay, God, you promised all these things, so I'm gonna live however I want, but you better do it. That's not how it works. Yes, he saves you by his grace, and he transforms you by his grace, but Paul told Timothy to do what? Discipline yourself for godliness. Do the work of sanctification by God's grace. 
So you might need to get up earlier in the morning and get in this book. And you might need to memorize this book on little flashcards throughout your day. And you might need to say, God help me because I know that when I encounter this person, I'm gonna be angry and I need your help to walk in the truth. I know that I'm gonna have desires for a substance when life gets hard. So God, before that comes, I need your help. Get me ready for the battle that's gonna come. We don't live in ignorance. We don't think, oh, I'm just gonna skip through life and hope no trials hit. A wise man sees evil and hides himself. So we say, God, I'm gonna go to you and cry out to you. And in that moment, folks, when we cry out for deliverance, we should be able to stand in humility and say, God, would you save me? I've followed you. Now, again, you can stand before him and say, God, I've, I've run from you. I have just defied you. I have ignored you. God, would you save me? And we have a God who saves, don't we? But I think here the psalmist is actually going not after positional justification, but practical deliverance. And he's saying, God, right now the trials in this life, they're pretty severe. And, and we know from the scriptures that he actually has evil men persecuting him. And he's saying, God, I've walked with you. Would you deliver me? I've been faithful to you. Do what you've promised. Do what you've promised. And the fool goes his own way. But the wise man submits to God and says, God, you promised to bless those who walk with you and I'm gonna be first in line. I'm gonna walk with you. And folks, my cry for this church is we'd be a church that's not holier than thou, that's not, oh, well, we've got it all together, but a church that says, by God's grace, we strive to walk with our God. That's what we long for, right? We long to walk with God. And we're not gonna condemn those who don't, right? Because we have grace, and we're gonna come alongside each other and provoke each other to love and good works. But in the midst of that, we're saying, oh God, we wanna walk with you. Because really at the end of the day, there's nothing better than walking with him, right? right. I mean, don't you know that? Yep. I mean, we've already talked about that. We've gone our own way, we've destroyed our lives, and in our foolishness we think, oh, I still got this. <laughs> when will we wake up and say, God, your way is good, and I'm done going my way. And so the psalmist here pleads for salvation and deliverance because he has deliberately walked with his God. Oh, may we do the same. So he cries out for salvation and sanctification. And the last thing we see in verse 95, here we see the reality of suffering and steadfastness. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but, but I consider your testimonies. I don't wanna beat a dead horse, if you will. But five times in the last five strophes, the last five sections, the psalmist has done the exact same thing. I'm talking like the exact same thing. Track with me. Verse 51, okay? Verse 51. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. 51, now 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. All right, verse 69. Though the, the, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your commandments. All right, verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame because they've wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Verse 95. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. 
So folks, he doesn't minimize suffering. All right, that was all last week and the week before last and the week before last. He doesn't minimize suffering. He, he recognizes suffering as a reality of life. But he contrasts every situation of suffering with propositional truth. In my suffering, I'm brought low. In my suffering, I'm caused, I want to question God. In my suffering, I don't know where to turn. Well, the psalmist says, in my suffering, I know exactly where to go. He runs to truth, not feelings. Every time. Because in those moments of suffering, we want to go how we feel. I mean, this is the classic Disney theology. Follow your heart. And my kids watch Disney, okay? But if you watch their movies, that's what they, every one of them communicates the same message. Follow your heart. Do what you think is best for you. Wow. Well, that goes entirely against this book. Right? We don't follow our hearts. We follow truth. And he goes, he says, I'm not going after feelings. I'm going after truth. He runs to, he runs to doctrine, not emotions. He goes to, this is the revealed character of my God. I mean, isn't that he started off? You're the one who spoke the world into existence. You're the one who sustains all things by your power. You're the one whose word is firmly fixed in the heavens. He goes to doctrine. He goes to truth, not his emotions. I don't want to downplay emotions because emotions are a good gift of God. But at the end of the day, the emotions are some of those things we have to speak truth into our emotions, right? You might be feeling discouraged and despairing, but you know what? When you come to me and there's emotions raging, I need to listen well as a brother in Christ and then I need to lovingly bring truth. We need to let the word of God speak into our emotions and not just believe everything that they throw in front of us. In the midst of his trial, he runs to that which is concrete, not that which is abstract. It's like this is what I know. It's what I know. I was reading a really interesting article. A friend of mine's a, a fighter pilot, and uh, he posted an article on Facebook that was written by a seasoned retired fighter pilot. And the point of the article was that these men um, who fly, uh, you know, um, incredible uh, machinery, they they never react because their training demands they process every decision carefully. So he, he's in this article. It was just one of those like mind-blowing, like for me, because I'm, I'm not a pilot, right? Um, he's talking about, you know, flying, doing this mission, and, and their engine goes out, like out. And, and the last thing you do is eject. And I'm like, well, the first thing I do is eject. <laughs> I'm like, done, I'm out of here. See ya, $100 million plane, I don't care. Behind enemy lines, I don't care, I'm out. And he says, and he walked through in his mind, like, they had already talked about all of these things happening. I mean, for hours before the mission, they've got a plan for every failure. So he and the guy behind him, as their plane is you know, coming out of the sky towards the ground without power, they're talking through all the things they could or could not do. I'm like, um, no, mm-mm. not this guy, right? Well, in that moment, they went to what they knew to be true. right? They go to, we know this is true, and we're gonna walk through this. We're not just gonna go emotions. They went to what's concrete, not what's abstract, not with what their feelings told them to do, but what they knew to be true. Brothers and sisters, that's the Christian life. There's gonna be things that hit you today, tomorrow, the next day, next year, and if you don't have a firm commitment as the psalmist to run to scripture, you will go to something. You will go to something, a broken cistern that cannot satisfy. 
You will go after that thing that the world says will bring relief and it brings you despair. And we must be people that, that let truth win the day. Truth must always win the day, especially when affliction comes. Do you see what the psalmist has done here? I mean, he's established for us the stability of the word. And then he's had these statements that have established life is not stable. And then he teaches us by example what it means to be stable because we can hope in the word of God. I mean, he's just navigated this for us in a beautiful way. And I would be remiss this morning to not say this, that when you go to John chapter one, what do you see? In the beginning was who? The word the person of Jesus, who was the agent, the active agent in creation, according to Colossians 1, the one who spoke the heavens into existence was our Savior. He is the Word of God. In Him, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We go to our Savior, and we say, oh, we have a steadfast hope. We have both the, the written word. We have the living word. And so when the world comes crashing, we're anchored to the rock and we can hold on knowing that he is holding on to us. Folks, I hope that this morning in whatever instability God is bringing into your life, that you can find hope and encouragement that this word is exceedingly broad. It knows no limits and we can Hold on to it every time. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I want to lift up my brothers and sisters this morning because I truly don't know what you're taking them through. I don't know the instability that life is bringing, but I know that life is unstable because we live in a fallen world. And so, Father, this morning, we need to be reminded that we can have an absolute confidence in God and his word. I have seen the limit of all things, but your word is boundless. Oh, may we be able to draw near to you today and find that to be true, because it is. And in Christ's name, amen.